Grief, Gratitude, and Greatness is a production of Recursive Delete Audiovisual. As part of my research into grief, I've come to know grief can be isolating and community is essential to explore, survive, and heal with grief. I co-facilitate the Pause, Breathe, Restore retreats, along with wellness coach Erin Vanderkort. We help people engage and move forward with grief in a safe, supportive, and healing community. Our next grief retreat will be held at the Oregon Coast, October 3rd through 6th. Information about this retreat can be found at pausebreatherestore.com and in our show notes. Gratitude and Greatness explores our relationship with grief, the gratitude for our humanity, and the greatness we attain when we tell our stories. I'm your host, Sarah Shaul. Logan Lynn is an accomplished singer-songwriter who overcame childhood sexual abuse and addiction to advocate for himself and others. I speak with Logan about his music and his passion for LGBTQ rights, designer labels, and small creatures. You know, I was really young. I was raised in the church, super non-affirming, anti-gay church. And I was a gay little kid. (laughs) You know, I haven't actually changed all that much. If you watch old videos of me singing and dancing to Debbie Gibson songs, the only thing that's changed is now I work with Debbie Gibson, right? (laughs) I'm actually doing the same exact stuff. I was a not openly gay child, but I was visibly, I would say, queer or different really early on. And I identified as someone who wanted to dance and someone who wanted to sing and someone who wanted to wear sequins. That was early. And I think that I, for whatever reason, caught the attention of a man who was a predator. And as predators do, he managed to get really close to my family and Mm. was a student at the school that my dad worked at. I was seven years old and he moved in with our family and I was, I was hurt. I used to have all different kinds of words for what I was. And I really think of it now as an injury, sexual injury, soul injury. But from seven to nine, I was really hurt and Mm -hmm. and mistreated. And it was because of the grooming that had occurred and because it was all wrapped up in Christianity and stuff like that. It really had a profound impact on me. You know, it caused me to dissociate early on. I had a stage built for me in the garage, and I really did believe that I was a character on Kids Incorporated. Like, I I convinced myself that I was on TV, that I was best friends with Tiffany, the pop star, and that I would someday make records with her, right? Like, I I wished on that. That's how I survived. So... The songs, her songs in particular, all of that media from that time really came to define who I am. My real life was so awful, and I was so worried that if I told I was going to go to hell and my whole family would go to hell, that was the big lie. Was that something that... Yeah, my abuser 
was very clear after each occurrence that it had been me who had done it Mm. and that if I told, we would all go to hell. And so I just didn't tell. And I assumed over time that my parents knew. I assumed that it was something that all adults did. Oh, yeah, I just was, yeah. I was really... You were so young. I didn't know. I was seven. Like, I look at those pictures and videos of me from back then, and I was really too little to even have a voice. And right. so I didn't, right? And, and I think now it's so obvious, and there's all these stories. You know, people like to say, you're gay because you were abused, right? Like, that's a big thing in our church, which also was hard for me later on. But I say our church, like it's my church, the church I grew up in. And now there's been all these scientific studies that show that actually LGBT kids are more likely to be abused because they were gay and not the other way around. And because of the deep shame that the feelings produce, like it's... Is it just because there's stigma of being gay in a household or in the church where you're expected to be straight? Yeah, that would have been worse, I think, than what was happening to me to actually own that I was that somehow. And I wasn't, right? Like, that was the part that damaged me, was that what happened to me wasn't sexuality. What happened to me wasn't gay. What happened to me was violence. When I was about 11 and my hormones started to appear and and I developed early for whatever reason, just to like add gasoline on the fire. Like I had a man body when I was 12 and it was hard. My reactions up to that point had been behavioral health challenges in the home. Nothing made sense to my parents. We were in conflict out of nowhere. Just suddenly I was a different person. I resented my brother a lot. My brother's five years younger and I did save him. So I did things early on where I volunteered to participate so that he wouldn't. And he never Mm -hmm. did. and, And I kept him safe. There were times where I locked him in the bathroom while my parents were gone. When I look back now, it was was just deeply terrible. So I had all this resentment to my family who I thought knew. I had resentment to my brother who was having such a great life, having such a great childhood, and they loved him. And he was easy to be around because he had been spared these experiences. And so my parents loved him and celebrated him. It was just hard. All, All of it was hard, and I started using. I medicated myself the first time when I was 10 or 11. Yeah, Benadryl. And then alcohol and cigarettes and whatever I could find. Because of my behavioral health stuff, by the time I was 12 or 13, I couldn't be homeschooled. I had to be put into regular school, which was at that point still an evangelical Christian school system. And really, I don't know if this has changed, but when you have a troubled young person, the last thing you want to do is put them in private school with a bunch of other troubled kids. And because it was K through 12, suddenly at age 12 had teenagers around me. And so at that point, one day, one of them gave me acid. I I took LSD. I realized I was gay and that all of this I had been taught was totally not real. None of this is real. My parents and all this shit is not real. What happened to me is real, but not like I thought. Like it it really, and this is this is not a pro LSD conversation I'm having. I I I think it definitely um, messed me up in a lot of ways, but it did do something kind of like a time machine where I was in that first trip able to kind of go back and look at what happened to me. And then I started chasing that. So I had this experience of 
I can see this. I can feel this. I, I understand this. There was a piece of relief that happened. The psychedelics were able to help my brain around it. MDMA helped me feel around it. Cocaine helped me not have to deal with any of that that I just mm. described. And yeah. so it was a progressive stepping out of myself, out of my pain, out of my experience. At first, really, I give myself credit. I wasn't getting help. I wasn't getting medicated for extreme trauma. I wasn't in therapy. And I had managed to find a chemical pathway through. It was harmful to me. Yeah. It was harmful and had people, the adults in my life, done what they should have done and gotten me help instead of sending me away or, or whatever happened out of fear, right? It was out right. of fear. I could have been caught so much earlier. I could have spared myself the 16 years of drug addiction and overdoses and near-death experiences. And frankly, reenactment, my thing that I did to make myself feel better somehow and this you know in trauma theory i've done a lot of research and studying up on it often early childhood experiences like that that are so extreme tend to make a place in your heart like a home sort of place and so the only times i ever felt at home or connected were times when somebody was hurting me mm. and so i did a lot of that right like i did a lot of chasing away feelings and inviting in experiences that would cut through the chemical yeah. wall yeah. and at least allow me to feel something good or bad. And I did that for decades. I had a partial stroke in 2008 called 911 and was in the hospital for a couple of weeks, had a few days where my legs and arms didn't work. And I just thought I was over I thought everything was over like i wanted to escape i don't even think i wanted to die the times where i had tried to take my own life it was always about make it stop man like make just make it stop i never wanted to hurt people i never wanted to hurt myself I never wanted to die like it was all about getting this man to stop hurting me and that man from my childhood i took on that role i hurt myself over and over, right? And so to really come to grips with that, that I was the man that was hurting me, that was a whole other process. If you'd like to support our work with grief, gratitude, and greatness, consider becoming a backer on Patreon. Your support allows us to deliver conversations that help to dissolve the stigma and evolve our culture around grief. You'll find a link to contribute via Patreon in the show notes. And if you have a business that supports people who are listening to our show, let's talk about how you can sponsor an episode or two or three. I was in the hospital a year. Two weeks from this partial stroke is a TDI or TIA. One of them is a bomb and one of them is what happened to me. <laughs> There's a, a war term that's either TIA or TDI. But I had the thing that happens to you right before you have a stroke all the way. And it, it cut off enough oxygen where I was scared. Once I was able to do detox, I did that. It was a few weeks. And then I was in a place called Pathways in St. Helens for 
months and then did aftercare for, uh, you know, a good 10 months after that. But I had been in rehab over and over before that. The reason it stuck this time was the fear that had happened around my body. And I met a doctor that finally asked me what I was doing, like what had happened to me. I think up till that point, everyone had always just been like 90 meetings in 90 days or pray it away or take this pill and come back every day for a month. Nobody ever stopped and said to me what this doctor said. And, you know, he was just straight up like, do you want to be homeless? Did you decide to lose everything? Did you decide to hurt everyone you've ever known? And you want to die? Like, are you doing this on purpose? And and I remember feeling so angry at him. Like, why are you even asking me this? Of course, I don't want this. I, of course, didn't choose this. Yeah. And then he leaned in and said, what has happened to you? Yeah. And I think at that point, I had had enough. I was tired. I was really sick and couldn't shake the realization that I was doing it now to myself. There was no going back into a place of blindness. And so I leaned in, I got help. I had just been signed to a major label and I disappeared and chose life over career. And that would be the first time of many that I have done that since where I, I'm just no good if I'm dead. Sorry, Caroline EMI Records. You can wheel a corpse around. You'll have one good record or you can let me do this. Like, I need to do this. So you came clean with your record labels. And the world. I, I did press. I had a show on MTV's Logo Network at that time. And my first act out of rehab when I could stand being in front of a camera again was to talk about my recovery to 26 million people. I started doing it without having any language for what it was even. I knew I was done with that. I knew my music had been about that always. But to come and say it out loud, I'm medicating myself and I'm done with that. That was a first step in a process over the next decade. And I just celebrated 11 years this past March. I'm going to have 12 next March. I, for some Yay. reason, 12 seems better than 11. So I'm like, <laughs> I'm 11 and a half. Congratulations. Thank you. That's awesome. It's really a miracle, actually, that I've been able to carve my own pathway through this. I don't do AA. I do behavioral health therapy and cognitive exercises and have just changed my behaviors and manage my trauma differently. So, you know, once you stop just treating symptoms and start yeah. digging into, God, why do I hurt myself? I am afraid of dying. Why is every action I take leading me directly to mm. death? All of that really had to be sorted out. And I've done the work. It's been terrible. <laughs> and also it's been really wonderful and important. I've been able to use art to kind of carry me through and at times monetize it, which is wild to think about. Yeah. So when, um, so when you're talking about that, you mean your music? Yeah, my music or, you know, I made a film uh, in 2014, which was all about community trauma that I had experienced. Just being able to package up grief or pain or sadness and make it something that is worth being in the world. I, I don't yeah. particularly feel like my pain or what's happened to me is particularly a commodity or deserves to be celebrated, but the way through does. The way yeah. through 
and the life that has happened because of those choices and because of those drastic changes, because of my willingness to just for years, everyone I see apologize to and mean it really just even though I don't remember half the stuff I did I know I did it if you knew me during that time I hurt you right and so mm. how do you own that fully without exploiting yourself at a time when you're supposed to be healing was a tricky oh yeah balance. how did you do that not well mm. I exploited myself and I needed to do that I think it made me feel better the first few years to know that anytime somebody saw my name, it was me talking about what I'm doing to make myself better and what I had done to try to tip the scales back towards my humanity. There are some people who I can never apologize to. Seeing me would be a problem, right? Mm -hmm. And so my apology to them is I'm a better person. I won't ever make somebody else feel the way I made you feel, right? Like all of that has been my process and it has healed me. I did terrible stuff that I'm ashamed of. And also I, I'm not going to carry it around forever. I, I've been able to feel it, show people that I mean it and often bury my trouble in the dirt from whence it came. Mm. You came clean about your addiction. Yeah. But maybe not what was driving it right, right at first. And not that it's really anyone's business, but I'm thinking particularly your parents. Right. And I think oftentimes when there's childhood pain, yeah. especially when it's not caused by your parents, right? I'm sure you're feeling like, how could they not know this was yeah. happening? Yeah. We had no relationship for years because I was so angry and because they didn't want a relationship. They had kicked me out. Because of the addiction or because you had come out as gay? Well, I think the jury's out on that. I believe it's hard to disconnect heads from tails, mm. right? It's, mm. it's like all one coin. I was a scary gay drug addict, and I get it. They just have that all encapsulated as it was one hard thing. back then. Now that I mean, they're not even in the church now. They're awesome. They've all left. Everything's great with them. And I told them what had happened to me in 1999. How did they receive that? They came to San Francisco. I got very, very intoxicated mm. and saw them for dinner, then sent them an email with everything. And my understanding is that it didn't go well. They had known that something was seriously wrong, but my dad had rehired this man at that point, and I had had another experience as a 17-year-old and had just had enough. So I told them that I just never wanted to see him again and that if they ever wanted to see me again, he needed to not be around. Mm. Uh, and I believe they did a really quick super effective exiting of him from our lives. But he is a person who's never gotten in trouble. Ugh. And that uh, is hard, right? Yeah. And I am often conflicted about that. I've certainly had communication with him. I think he lives in fear of how public I am. I know my family has had communication with him. Is there a reason why you don't want to out him? I just think the reason probably doesn't exist anymore. Is it because you're focused on healing rather than vengeance? I don't want to fight. I think he's a person that would try to hurt me and my yeah. family. I, th I think this place where he's scared 
and his life is unpleasant and it's on the tip of my tongue has been working. I think some advocates would say that I had handled that wrong. We just decided as a family not to spend the rest of our lives dealing with it because we had spent the first half of our lives dealing with it. I do think if I were to die that my parents would take a different stance. But as long as I'm alive, I think they are, and and I am focused on life and, and really trying to be an advocate for helping families understand grooming, helping families understand it's probably somebody that you know and really getting clear about who we are as a family outside of the trauma that we share has been a focus. Just the fact that we love each other and are so close, I think that I want to protect that. That's so beautiful that you were able to salvage that or get back that piece of your childhood that you lost. They are being the parents that I always needed, which is good for them and great for me. I've been living this my whole life and I've been in lots of therapy. And even though the times where I went to rehab for three weeks, four weeks, however many weeks over and over didn't stick, I do think that each of those 16 times was important. You know, I remember the therapy that happened totally like down, up, down, up, and eventually it stuck. But they haven't had that. My parents and my brother haven't had 24-hour therapy for years if you add it all together. It's a process of me letting them love me now, me understanding now being 10 years older probably than they were back when I'm really mad about what they did to me as a teenager. I'm much older than they are, and I'm a dumbass still. You know, (laughs) I mean, like I really feel for them. And they were lied to their whole lives, too. That cult that we were raised in, they were also raised in. They have their own trauma. You're I, calling the church a cult. I am calling the church I grew up in a cult. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I think any organization, religious or otherwise, that separates families, that excommunicates mm-hmm. people who aren't meeting a certain standard, that would take your livelihood from you if you are queer, that is real culty. Yeah. It's real culty. You're taking all my money and brainwashing me just feels real familiar. So uh, not the most popular thing I say, but it feels really true to me. And the amount of work that we've had to do to deprogram ourselves as a family and as individuals is remarkable. It's no Scientology, but it feels right up there. We're curious to hear from our listeners. Do you have thoughts or reactions to something you heard in this episode? Or maybe you have an idea for grief, gratitude, and greatness and would like to share some feedback. We'd love to hear from you. Links to contact us can be found in all the usual places. Or check the show notes. I had a TV show and I was hosting it and I was trying to make it matter. And so... I was talking about stuff in the press, like addiction and recovery or LGBT rights. And they gave you all that latitude? They just said... No, no one wanted me to do any of that. No, mm. no, I that didn't last long, that mm. gig. And 
my label certainly didn't want me doing that. You know, I got a thing from EMI Records that they hadn't signed a self-help guru at oh. one point. <laughs> is that that was, <laughs> I was like, girl? You don't even know how bad <laughs> this is about to get. And I rebelled against all of that, right? Like I actually did reject a lot of that, but I started talking about it wherever I was. The more people told me to shut up, the louder I got. The louder it got, the more people noticed. And one of those people was Kendall Clausen, who at that point in time was executive director of the Q Center in Portland. And I went to some community forum one night, like in the middle of my tour. I was in town, miserable. I had stopped drinking and I was in bars every night singing about shit I didn't even believe in anymore. Like it was like Mm. so bad. And I hadn't gotten any of the money and I knew there was tons of money being made and it was just... It was bad news. And so I started talking about my problems. And some of my problems were with the label. And, I, you know, it just got bigger and bigger until one day during Rose Festival. It brings in a certain element. There's always violence down at the waterfront. Gay people always get bashed. It's a thing. At least it was a thing. I'm assuming it hasn't gotten better under this administration. But at any rate, my friends who were drag queens got beaten up on the Hawthorne Bridge. I went to a community forum. I sensed that I was useful for the first time in maybe my entire life. I felt present and useful and that this thing, this stupid thing that I hate, my career, this spotlight, this TV, the whole thing, I just hated it. But in the moment in Q Center, it was useful. Uh And people listened to me and they were like, that's the guy from online. That's the guy from TV. And I was able to center my values in this environment that was a total projection. None of it was real. None of fame. Nothing's real. I grew up thinking it was totally real. It's not. Nothing's real. Even when it's real, it's not really all that real. So I hated it. I resented it. And to feel in the moment that it also could be a positive thing in my life as this new person, that I could use it, whatever it is, the people criticizing me online, whatever all of it is, I could redirect it into the community and have it not hurt me and have it actually cause a flow of money into community groups and organizations that I care about and have me be able to do all this press that I am contractually obligated to do, (laughs) but have it raise money for Q Center. Also, in order to get out of my contract, I had to sue EMI Caroline for my name. Because smart me, 17-year-old guy making mixtapes, didn't think to do a stage name. So when I left midway through my tour, I canceled it. I'm like, I work at Q Center now. They were like, well, not as Logan Lynn. And they owned the rights to all my songs from forever. So I started a process of like, great, I quit. I won't be Logan Lynn publicly. I work at a community center now. And in fact, this record we've all been paying to create is a fundraiser for Q Center. And I just gave it away. For anyone that would donate, I gave them a copy of the record. I created a position for myself there. I worked for free until I could raise enough money to pay me, like, oh my God, enough to not have to tour or make records. Like, I need, I took a break. And during that time, I was able, because of the Dandy Warhols only, 
Courtney fought for my name. He fought to get the rights to all my music back. And then they gave it to me. They didn't, did. they didn't charge me. They just gave it all back to me. And that, uh, I think, empowered me at that point in time. I was like, great. Monkey off my back. I got all this valuable crap I don't care about, but these people out here seem to. And I want to feel useful. I want to feel like my time matters. I want to feel like my music matters and that whatever it is I've created, this career, it suddenly started making me feel good again. I, I felt like it was a positive in my life. I started going on TV and talking about stuff that I actually cared about. I saw my impact and heal a bunch of stuff from early on with myself. Like I just started feeling good, not about the way it was making me look, Because I think oftentimes it didn't always make me look great. I was doing advocacy that was unpopular sometimes and um, would be in the paper for that. Why was your advocacy unpopular? At Q Center, a church called Mars Hill from Seattle came in. They were notoriously preached that gay people were a cancer on society, that Mm -hmm. yoga was from the devil. They came into town and I reached out and that outreach was in the paper because they used to call me and ask me for comment. And I said, off the cuff, I guess I'm going to reach out and try to make friends. And that made our queer community so mad. But it also made this church elder show up at Q Center the next day because he had read in the paper that I was going to make friends with him. So I was like, crap, I got to meet with these people now. And we started doing it every week to the point where they decided their church was bad for society and they took down the 8 million member church. Oh my God! I made a movie called Lead With Love about it, just about that process. So even though at times it felt bad doing the work, in the end, I always feel like that time matters, that my investment has mattered. I helped Q Center buy their building, left there, helped cover Oregon, be cool enough to get people to sign up. At that point, somebody from Trillium Family Services, which is Oregon's largest provider of mental and behavioral health care for children, reached out and asked if I wanted to partner with them on creating Keep Oregon Well, which is a mental health campaign. I, I did that the last few years. If I can merge music and entertainment and bring in just enough celebrity to get attention, and then we all shine our light on the stuff that matters to me, which is human rights or LGBTQ issues locally or mental and behavioral health care, drug addiction and recovery. All of these things feel like they need a movement. And I do feel like a reluctant movement builder. Why reluctant? Probably inner critic, less reluctant now, but early on, I carried a lot of shame about who I had been. I carried a lot of guilt around what I had done and to come out with not only am I still alive and popular where you might have to see me on your TV, but now I'm a do-gooder. <laughs> because like, what are you doing? Like, is this all fake? Like, is this guy for real? But now 10 years in, people know it. it's actually who yeah. I am. And, yeah. and I've been able to do enough in the community where people know my motives and know how to use me, for lack of a better term. I don't mind being used for good. I certainly feel like being useful is a positive thing. And I've continued to grow that. You know, I had a new record come out this last year. 
with a bunch of people that I've wanted to work with my entire life. It's, I've been putting out records 20 years this coming year. That's amazing. It's really weird to think about that. Like I listened to some of those old 17-year-old songs. I feel proud of that guy now. I don't think I felt that then and certainly could take the point of view that I've squandered lots of opportunities, but I'm proud of that kid. I had so many pathways towards destruction. I could have really easily taken and did sometimes and, you know, hopped off just right at the right moment to have successfully navigated what happened to me just by itself to become a whole person from that yeah. is a huge enough accomplishment that I would feel proud for my whole life. Yeah. And to be able to add value to some experiences, to be able to make the trauma into music that people can relate to and connect to and pay my bills with has been so healing. You know, I think sort of the dark corners where justice hasn't necessarily been served. I'm serving justice every day when I fight for myself, when I get up and I do something for another little kid who is in that same sort of environment. I have really harnessed my own strength and power and made it through that weird thing where you're drunk with power. <laughs> like I actually have come back down from all of that. I'm excited about life again. I feel really in tune with who I am yeah. and what I'm trying to do. And that has opened up a lot of gateways towards what I actually have come to think of as my big dream, right? Like my big dreams have changed. I always felt like fame was my big dream. It's not. Actually, it is a big dream. It's a big nightmare. <laughs> my big dream is to feel connected, to feel like things are better because I was there and to have mattered during the process. What would you say to that 14-year-old kid that was writing those songs? But then I'm thinking, you know, that 14-year-old kid needed to go through these experiences, yeah. all of them. So I would have gotten him a therapist. You would have gotten him a therapist. Yeah. That's the one. I would have, I would have as a parent or a guardian, I would have heard that first mixtape and gotten me some help. Yeah. And if I had the wherewithal back then to advocate for myself in healthcare, I honestly don't know very many 14-year-olds that are like, I am my own healthcare advocate. But but there probably are those kids now that there's internet. When I was that age, there wasn't. I just was in the Midwest and didn't know how. And so I think I would give him resources. And I would encourage him to be brave. I would encourage him to mess up and record it. I would take more video and I would... Be nicer to him. Be nicer to him. Yeah. yeah. I'm working on that still. I have yeah. a hard time with that. I no longer need other people's mirrors to see my own reflection in a positive way. I still really do have to talk myself into the day. Every morning I, I wake up and I remind myself who I am and what I'm trying to do and I think that's forever, probably. I, I, you know, I struggle with depression clinically. I struggle with the remnants of all my years. And I have come to accept that. I actually think there's some power in that, too, to actually be able to identify, like, oh, right, this is that thing. You're doing that thing again. And this is connected to this experience. And let's not live that out again. You know, I turned 40 this year, which... It feels like a friggin' miracle that I'm this 
age and happy and have a life. So I'm liking it. I also feel really confident that I'm not going to have any mystical regrets if I were to get hit by a bus when I walk out the door tonight, right? Like I feel like the people in my life know that they matter to me. They know that I love them. And I've done enough already to feel proud of how I turn things around. Grief, Gratitude, and Greatness is a production of Recursive Delete Audiovisual in Portland, Oregon. This episode was produced and edited by Jack Saturn and me, Sarah Shaul. The music was by Samantha Jensen. Visit us online at griefgratitudegreatness.com. You can also follow us on Instagram at griefgratitudegreat. Subscribe to our show on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Overcast, or wherever you like to listen. And leave us a review. Your feedback helps our show and helps us find new listeners. If you have a story of your own that you'd like to share or topics you'd like to hear more about, we'd love to hear from you. Call or text our show at 503-454-6646 or send us a message via the contact link at griefgratitudegreatness.com. Be sure to let your friends know about us and join us next time. We look forward to sharing more conversations with you.